Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It's Monday morning. We had a fantastic weekend of Olympic bike racing. We're going to talk all about it today. We had a pretty wild women's race, a somewhat less wild men's red race, uh, and just last night, the men's mountain bike race with even more news to come out of it. But before we get anywhere, hello, everybody. Abby, you're going to be joining us just for the beginning of the show today because your uh, your parents just got into town. That's nice. Yeah, we're all hanging out in Latvia together. And Shoddy Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Why, thank you very much. How's the little one? Oh, she's ace apart from the sleeping bit. She's ace apart from that little bit, yeah, which isn't that big a deal, <laughs> is it? You might be able to see. We need sleep. Yeah, you might be able to see, well, people on the podcast won't or listening to the podcast won't. I've gained a couple more bags under them eyes of mine. You look great, Shotty. I think you look great. James, welcome back. You're in the you're in the garage, looking clean. I am in the garage. I'm 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 looking clean, but feeling quite warm. It's toasty uh, in here. Yeah, warm in Boulder right now. And Dane mm-hmm. Cash. Yeah. Hi. Doing fine. I guess it's warm in Boulder, but you know I have air conditioning, so it's fine in in the room here. Aren't you fancy? Aren't you fancy? Well, before we get anywhere today, before we get into the Olympics and the crazy, crazy women's road race and a very unfortunate crash in the men's mountain bike race, et cetera, et cetera, we must learn about Continental. Shadi, what do we got this week? Oh, I've missed doing this, I tell you. I really have. Anyway, let's delve into it this week. Wherever you are in the world, there's hopefully riding to be done from the Yorkshire Dales, which is awesome to the flatlands of the Netherlands, which I suppose is pretty awesome as well, to the heat and the dust of Utah and so many other places. Wherever you ride and wherever your surface you ride on, your best bet is continental. There's GP5000 for the roadies, available, of course, in tubeless and tubed. Conti has the right tubes for those two who are still on Team Tube inside. There's Terra Speed or Terra Trail if gravel's your thing or if club racing is your scene there's continentals competition tires for that too and of course there's continentals wide range of urban and mountain bike tires as well watching the pros is amazing but getting out for a ride yourself is even better so get out on continental tires there we go hey now Here's a little, uh, not inside thing, but something I've noticed bouncing around on the net today about Continental. Looks like Pidcock might have been on some prototypes to his win at the Olympics. You notice that, James? I've, I've, <laughs> I've heard rumours. I hope, I hope we're not uh, upsetting Continental here. I'm sure not. Shadi, I would say with a very high degree of confidence that any time a tyre company, any time a bicycle company of any sort put something in one of the biggest races in the world that they know will be televised worldwide, they are fully expecting that people are going to see <laughs> that there is some sort of unreleased product on their bike, and they want people to talk about it. Fair enough, then. We, we won't have upset him then. Perfect. Thanks, Continental, for sponsoring this week's episode and for sponsoring, apparently, the winner of the men's cross-country gold medal. Let's get on with the show. All right, we're going to start. We're going to start with the weirdest Olympic road race I've seen ever. Uh, 
Olympic road races are always a little bit weird because they're small fields, they're small teams, they're, well, they're once every four, or in this case, five years, and so there's just a huge amount of pressure on everybody. And this one was kind of defined in the end by this huge amount of pressure on the Dutch team in particular, and a, well, that, that, that basically determined the tactics of the entire day, which ended up working out quite well for an unexpected rider. Abby, what happened? Yeah, so going into the race, the Dutch were definitely the favored riders. I mean, all four of them were the four top favorites to win the race. Two former Olympic champions, uh, world champions, just have absolutely dominated the 2021 season. So well-earned pressure, I think, (laughs) for them. Um, at kilometer zero, there was an, t- an attack by Austrian rider Anna Kiesenhofer, who's the only only Austrian in the race, um, all, all by herself. She attacked at kilometer zero. She went away with a group of five. There was definitely some shuffling that happened during the race. You know, at one point, two riders attacked, and then two more attacked, and then people got dropped. So there was a lot going on, but... There was these five riders were off the front for they got a 10 minute gap. I mean, that is I know the the men's race also got a massive gap, but a 10 minute gap in a race where there's 67 riders and the largest team size is four is really significant. And I think that the reason the gap went out that far was because um, everyone was looking at the Dutch and the Dutch were like, well, we're not going to do it. And so no one did it. Well, <laughs> um, damn a chicken. Yeah. So yeah, chicken that paid off really well for Anna, who eventually, once the break kind of whittled its way down to three, um, and they still had, you know, eight, nine minutes, they they had a, a lot of time. She attacked on the uh, douchey climb and soloed away from the two other riders that were with her, Anna Plikta and Omar Shapira of Israel and, uh, and Poland. And Anna Kiesenhofer went solo for... 41k i think all the way to the line um behind her there was still some action going on a meek attacked she she didn't get she got like a, a minute at one point maybe up to a minute but she did get brought back by the peloton there was more action and then anna after anna won the race beautifully won just an incredible one of those rides that is like a once in a lifetime thing to watch once in a lifetime thing to happen i mean she was the first attack of the day, uh, and she was not on anyone's radar going into the race, and she won the race. And then a minute and some later, Anna Meek Van Vluten crossed the line solo and threw her arms in the air, followed by Elisa Langeborghini in third. Um, and, and the chaos ensued between all of the teams who, who knew that Anna was off the front, who didn't know. Um, I feel, you know regardless of of what communication happened during the race the ride that Anna Kiesenhofer put in was just incredible and she was so strong she was just incredibly gutsy it's like something we just don't see in bike racing really that much anymore for someone to kind of go all in like that people are really calculated with their efforts and she wasn't calculated she was like well the only thing I can do is go up the road um, and it paid off for her. And I think it's like really important, important to point out that when Anamika attacked the the Peloton on the Doshi, Doshi climb, 
Anna was still holding the distance. They weren't bringing her back or anything. Like, she was gaining time on Anamique chasing. Uh, Anamique, former world champion, one of the absolute best in the world. So I think that, you know, say what you will about the communication, which we will get into in a second. I just, I cannot give enough praise to Anna for this incredible, incredible win and the performance. And I think it's a massive bummer that the communication in the race kind of is not overshadowing her win at all, but it definitely was a conversation that happened a lot after the race. I loved how much, how much debate was going on on Twitter. I've never seen so many people talking about a women's race ever. Um, but it is like, it's, it sucks for Anna, but she's still, she still rode incredibly, incredibly strong. Never cracked. She never, she cracked. never cracked. I mean, she didn't yeah. even really slow down at the end there because, yeah, they they pulled back a couple minutes in the final in the final ten or fifteen k when they really started rotating, but she still held them off. She still, yeah, like I said, she never cracked, and that was a hard, hard circuit. I mean, you know, in the preview, Abby, you were, you were saying that there's there's not a single foot of flat on that entire course, and to be able to hold off a a charging, albeit small, peloton was still massively impressive. Yeah. Plus, she's a what a postdoc in mathematics. Uh, she has a PhD. Yeah. She's not a professional. She she doesn't ride for a team. She had I mean James will get into it, but she had Shimano and SRAM on her bike. Like she had she was riding a Franken bike. <laughs> like she supposedly didn't have a coach. She apparently coached herself. Supposedly she coaches herself. She coaches herself. She's she retired in 2017. She was on Lotto Sudal. She retired in 2017. Uh, and, and came back in 2019, won both of the nationals, both of the Austrian nationals in 2019 was fifth in the European championship ITT. Yeah. Please tell me she had like a mum or dad in the pit sanding up a bottle, husband, something like that. There was like, she, she's here solo. Yeah. There was somebody from the Austrian. I mean, that was actually, it was, it was, it was really a bummer at the finish line because she had like nobody to hug. She just wanted to hug somebody. And there's like nobody to hug, and and I think the only rider to come over and congratulate her was was Cecily Ludwig. I, bl- I believe was the only one that I saw on television anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, partially because, as we will now talk about, some of the other riders <laughs> didn't realize that she had won the bicycle race. Uh, now, it's still I think to this moment unclear kind of whose fault this is, um, whether it was a failure of communication from organization or from individual teams or riders just not paying attention i mean we can kind of come into this with it with a baseline of well you're inside the bike race and it is kind of your responsibility to pay attention to who is up the road and who's not uh i think a lot of us here have raced races without race radios and yeah it's it's a little bit more difficult you have to you have to you know you have to count uh i certainly have asked others in the peloton around me is there somebody still up the road because you can't really remember it is difficult. It's hard. Uh, we don't, like I said, we don't really know whose fault this this really was, or whether there's really fault to be to be passed around at all. But the end result was that Anna Van Vluten crossed the line and put her hands in the air because she thought she just won the bike race, and the Dutch were certainly riding like they weren't fully aware of either how far ahead Anna was or how many riders were left up the road or something because they left it so, so late. So I, you know, here in the States, it was at what finished at like three o'clock in the morning. I went to, I went to sleep for a couple hours, woke up 
with our new baby. And I was like, oh, I'll just watch the, I'll just watch the end of the women's race. So I turned it on at like 20k to go, and it was still, I think, a nine minute gap at like 20k to go. And my initial reaction was, what on earth are they doing? What are they doing? How have they screwed this up so badly? They're they're not going to catch you. You're not going to close nine minutes in 20k. And that turned out to be correct. So, Abby, what 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 went wrong here? Was it was it simply that the Dutch and all the other teams were playing chicken and no one wanted to pull? Did they not really know who was up up the road? Were they looking at the wrong time checks? That's been suggested because you know they've so they've got they've got the chalkboard person just like in the Tour de France, right? There's a person with a chalkboard that gives the time gaps, but particularly after the that front group had split, there was one rider, and then there's group two G two and group three, and the peloton was actually group three. And there's been suggestion that they maybe thought that they were group two, and so they thought the gap was a minute when in fact it was six or whatever at 12k to go. What do we think happened here? I think the gap was significantly smaller than that. It was like five minutes with 20k to go or four and a half minutes. I'm pretty sure I opened it up at about 20k and it was like massive. Kelly, I just want to point out that you you had you just said that you woke up in the middle of the night tending to a crying baby after sleeping for a couple of hours. And having gone through new daddy experience myself, I would question your 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 accuracy of your, your time check. Right there. <laughs> I second that. <laughs> it was a big gap. It was a big it gap. It was a massive gap. What you said doesn't. It was like, too doesn't big. I, I remember opening it up. I distinctly remember opening up and being like, "Oh, they're not going to catch her. They screwed this I up." I think that's that's true either way. I just want to make sure that we don't have like a barrage of emails saying, "Oh, it was four minutes, not nine minutes," because I think it was four and a half minutes. Well, regardless of what happened, as far as like who's like, who's to blame or fault, I feel like we have this sort of discussion anytime we are talking about a race that does not involve race radios with a bunch of riders who are accustomed to having race radios. This, I feel like this sort of something like this happens all the time. Like there's some confusion. They don't really know exactly what's going on. You know, some people say like, oh, but it made for better racing. And then the people who are accustomed to race radios like, oh, it made for worse racing because we didn't know what was going on. And just how it is. Let's be honest. So every one of them cyclists have been through lower ranks to get to where they are. So they have raced, yeah, maybe five, six, seven, even 10 years ago at a level where they haven't had a race radio. And you should go into a a race like the Olympics knowing that it's going to be a little bit mayhem. You've got to go in with a plan knowing that, yeah, communication might not be um, as slick as a, a, a pro tour event, a world tour event. And it's worth mentioning that you know we, we do have reports from a lot of riders who made it very clear that they did know that she was up the road, uh, and they were aware of time splits. Um, so, you know ex- exactly how far off those were, if at all, and how up to date the information were. You know that we don't really exactly know, but you know, but it certainly seems like a failure on the part of the Dutch team to not know at all that she was up the road. Yeah, you'd think at least like a, a team car would have driven up next to him and yelled that there was still somebody there when they were looking at at 10k and multiple minutes, right? Uh, like I said, I think I think it's I think it's somewhat reasonable to to believe that like the 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 times on the chalkboard were confusing because they weren't sure which group they were basically. I th- and and if you look if you look at the quotes from right after the finish, that's kind of what it sounds like. Where I think it was Van Vanderbregen who was saying that. Like she, she, you know, she thought it was it was a minute and a half, and it was actually four minutes, and that all checks out with sort of just chalkboard confusion, which again just kind of comes back to the Dutch team who were responsible really 
or pulling because why would why would you pull the Dutch team to the finish line? Who would help? You can't really blame other teams for not helping. It it was their responsibility to know who's up the road and how far, and they didn't. And as a result, they waited way too long, and it was simply too late. Marianne Voss said that she knew about this or roughly knew about this. And in a peloton of what started out as, how was it, 67 starters, there's not really an excuse to say, right, I couldn't get to my other teammates because there wouldn't have been 67 finishes, that's for sure, on that race. So there's no excuse to say I couldn't get the information to my other teammates because I haven't got the information at hand here how many people finished. But it's definitely, it's not like you're fighting 190 other riders to to find other teammates like like you would at a a pro tour race, world tour race. But Voss only knew that there was a rider up the road still when Annemiek van Vluten had already attacked on the final circuits. So she didn't know the entire time there was that there was, it's not like she didn't communicate with her team that there was someone up the road because at one point Van Vluten said that she, in the quotes after the race, she said that she went to Voss and asked, is there someone up the road? And Voss said, I don't know. And then after Van Vluten attacked, this is when Voss found out. But the gaps on the time board might have been wrong. Um, it sounds like some people are saying that the time gaps on the on the board were from uh, Kiesenhofer to Plikta and Shapira, which was a very different time gap from Kiesenhofer to the Peloton. Whatever happened, like there was a massive lapse in, in communication and it really does make a difference at who, who's at fault because if it's the riders are at fault for not paying attention to the time board and not communicating with each other, then I mean, that's just like kind of insane that a team full of world champions would have made that mistake. Um, and also like hilarious and also great because it was like, I mean, it was great. Like I went into the race, like a little bit disheartened. I'm not going to lie with how, how dominant the Dutch have been all season and how the race looked like it was going to play out. But if it's the fault of the the organization and what was happening with the time board and the communication that was being given to the cars in the race, because the guy on the moto, like there are the ones and the guy in the comm car are also the ones telling the cars what the time gaps are. So if they, they were giving the wrong information to go to the riders, it's not like the riders are in the Peloton, like knowing exactly what's going on up above. They don't know what's going on up the road. Like they have no idea what the time gaps are without someone telling them because they're in the bike race. So it, I feel like it does matter who's at fault. Cause if it's, if it's the race that that's at fault, then that is, that is so bad. But if it's the riders that are at fault, then it's just, I mean, honestly, it's just funny. I also feel like the communication conversation, I, I'm a little bit bummed for Kiesenhofer because I think it takes away from her really impressive win. Uh, she's, I mean, that whole trio, the, the front group, had like five, more than five minutes uh, before she even got clear. And going into the last several K, her gap was such that even if they knew she was there, they're not going to catch her. So I, I feel bad for Kiesenhofer because I, we all were talking about the communication thing, but even if they knew there was a gap... Like if they knew in the last 5K that there was a four-minute gap or a three-minute gap, what does it matter? No, she's still going to win. Kiesenhofer had an amazing ride, and she she was able to win, one, because of her huge engine, but two, because she played this race really smartly. I mean, the, the, the number of riders on each of the teams in this race meant that the early break was always going to have a good chance because every team was going to look at the Dutch. It's sort of the same way the finale of the men's race played out, where there were no teammates 
there were no domestiques left in that main group. Uh, and so a rider or two riders really were able to get off the front because nobody really wanted to chase. That's exactly what happened in this race, except it was the entirety of the race. It was the early breakaway that, that went clear. And basically everybody looked at the Dutch to chase it and they didn't. I think the communication breakdown, if it was going to have an effect on the race, it was earlier than like 5K out, right? If by, 5K, by, 5, by 10K out, it was too late. It was absolutely too late. Heck, the second it hit 10 minutes, a 10-minute gap with a peloton of 67 riders, or at that at that point, like 60 riders, less than 60 riders with like tiny team sizes, that was where it was too late. I, I, I don't know if I agree with that because they, I mean, they, they pulled back nine of those minutes in like very quickly at the end of the race, right? The problem is they started chasing about 10K too late. And so if there was, if they were seeing the wrong time gap and they thought the time gap was 90 seconds and it was actually four minutes at... 20k out or whatever it was like would they have started chasing at 30k out in earnest and then they would have caught her there's i think there's very little question that they could have caught her and really anything else like thinking that they weren't going to catch a solo rider even with with a diminished group i think is kind of wishful thinking i do agree that kisanoffer played this one perfectly she she knew that there would be potentially confusion behind her chaos behind her a lot of sort of infighting behind her and so as a result, you know, yeah, she, she, she played them really well. But there's no question in my mind that that Peloton could have caught her if the right people were fully aware of how big the gap was early enough. But they weren't. And I, again, that's whether, whether that's their fault or the race organizer's fault, I don't think we really know. Because um, the, the, the information we have is just all, you know, it's all conflicting at the moment. And and Dane, you were talking about how you were talking about how unfortunately this controversy arguably takes away somewhat from her win. I I would argue, that, I mean, yeah, maybe to some extent, but the the fact of the matter is, she still made this happen. She still went into that race, likely thinking to herself, you know, like I'm not I'm not a favorite. They are probably going to let me go. I think I can stay away. She she made that gamble. She made that happen, and. I think she she deserves the recognition for sure. She didn't even. She said in an interview, she said that her best bet was twenty fifth going into the race. She was like twenty fifth would be a good result for me. Well, but but she's but but you wouldn't you wouldn't be you you wouldn't think if you were her going away. Okay, yeah, maybe she didn't think that she could win a medal, but she was still knowing that she wasn't going to be a targeted rider. She played it perfectly. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, calculated and mathematician jokes that I'm just suppressing right now. You know, <laughs> she did. She played it absolutely perfectly. I just think the uh, the Dutch team might be uh, Dutch Cycling Federation team, maybe a little bit cursed. We got this situation. We got Vandenpol situation, and then today in uh, practice at the BMX, Kim or uh, Nico Kinman crashed out uh, by hitting a a a, a loose um, organizer. An organizer was. A loose organizer. I was looking for another word there. A stray. That's the one. A stray <laughs> organizer on the. Um, Someone put a leash on that. Yeah, guy. they definitely need to. They plowed straight into him in their practice laps on the BMX track. I feel like this curse is entirely of their their own making, though, because there yeah. were there were from much of the day. I mean, towards the the really pointy end of the race, there were three riders off the front, and they're good riders: uh, Plikta, Shapira, and obviously Kizanoffer, who won. Good riders, but the Dutch had Marianne Voss, Annemiek van Vleuten, Anna van der Breggen, and Demi Vollering, all of whom are awesome riders. And if three of those riders had tried to chase down three riders up front, 
they probably would have caught them, but they didn't. And they could have bought into a plan before the race in which three riders said, okay, we're going to work. Even though we're all stars, we're going to do domestique work. But they didn't. I mean, all, all of them did some work on the day, so I don't want to take that away from them. But they clearly didn't want to end up, they didn't want the peloton saddling them with all the work on the day. They decided that that's not what they wanted to do, and it didn't work. And I don't, I don't know if that's a curse or that's just bad planning. I mean, you sort of contrast it to the Belgian team on the men's side, right? Working for Wildfire, and and they just went all in. They were like, "No, we're controlling it. Like we're we're gonna." Yes, they gave that that breakaway what twenty minutes or whatever. Men's racing is different, and it's a much bigger peloton. Uh, and the, that that breakaway was one hundred percent doomed, regardless. Particularly because the the course had more big climbs in it. But they, you know, we had we had the the defending Olympic champion pulling on the front from kilometer like what twenty. Or something like that. Greg Van Averant just sitting on the front for like 60K. The Dutch women never did that. They never really took control of the race. They never decided, no, 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 we are going to make sure that we that we that we boss this race, that we control this whole thing and we determine the outcome. They never did that. They gave this group too much time. The time gap kerfuffle at the end, notwithstanding. They yeah, and they screwed it up. The Dutch they messed it up, whether whether it was via their own internal communication or just giving it too much time to begin with. The, the Dutch let this one go. I guess you could also argue, I mean, there are there are other major teams in this race, right? The Americans, pretty pretty good team, uh, didn't do a whole lot of work. You know, you could... The, you Italians, could put, the, the Italians, Italians got third, but they still barely touched the front. Right. So, like, there is, I think, a little bit of blame to be passed around. Um you know, if you are if you are the American team, for example, and you see a ten minute gap, is it the responsibility of that director? I think it's Mike Sayers at the Olympics uh, to then you know drive up next to somebody and say, "All right, Chloe, go in the front, right?" or something, because you stick Chloe, Dig- Chloe Digard in the front of that group, she's probably pulling back a decent chunk of t- chunk of time relatively quickly, right? I-, I think that there is some blame sort of to go around. Uh, if you're viewing this as sort of like the Peloton failed more so than Kiesenhofer won, uh, which I think is an unfortunate viewpoint. And again, it kind of comes back to the the unfortunateness of this entire side story, right? The fact that we're, we're not sort of celebrating Kiesenhofer as much as we probably should be because there's this whole thing going on behind her that really, you know, dramatically affected the outcome of the race. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's unfortunate for her. I think that uh, we need to make sure that we kind of pivot back toward toward the positives and toward the person winning the bike race versus the pile of people who just abjectly lost the bike race. I mean, I would argue that it's a positive that the Dutch like absolutely failed at this bike race because they have they suffocated cycling all season, and I'm and I. They are amazing. Like uh, nothing against the Dutch, absolutely nothing against the Dutch, but they've really been so dominant this year that I think that they absolutely dirt deserve the the criticism that they're getting for having played the race the way that they did. I mean, if you're going into the race with four favorites, then you kind of need to take responsibility. You you kind of have to. And yes, I do agree other teams like drop the ball. It wasn't just the Dutch 100% the Dutch. It's like 90% the Dutch and then 10% the other teams, but that's because they've won 90% of the races this year. 
So, like, I don't know. That's just what you get. And say they had brought Lucinda Brand or Ellen Van Dyke or someone else in lieu of Demi Vollering or maybe Voss. Like, I hate to say that, but Voss has not been, like, yes, she won three stages of the Giro, but she's not been on, like, top, top form this year. Um, She... I mean, it's really hard to criticize, right? Like, obviously, I'm not a director. I, I don't I don't know everything I'm talking about. But if they'd brought one rider who wasn't a winner, one, then that would have lessened their the target on their backs just a, just a tiny, tiny bit that someone maybe would have been more willing to work with them. But no one was willing to work with them, and, and they kind of deserve... They deserve... They deserve it. Yeah, I think back to the, the Rio Road Race where... Kristen Armstrong, who was who was you know went on to win the time trial, obviously, and was an, is an incredibly strong rider, but was really just brought to that road race to hold it together to the base of the climb to let Mara Abbott go. Right, they had a plan, they executed that plan. Mara obviously got caught right in the finale, but they very 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 nearly won gold medal with that particular plan. And and it feels to me like the Dutch came into this kind of without a plan. They basically their plan was we've got four riders who could win this bike race, and we're just going to let them do their thing. And they, were they just ignoring the fact that the rest of the Peloton would just make them, would not let them do that? <laughs> that would not, would not allow them to just cruise around in the Peloton, cruise around for, for 67 uh, miles, I think it was. Um, like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you come into a bike race thinking that, that the rest of the group is going to allow you to just sit uh, sit there and, and then win at the end. That, that was never going to happen. It was absolutely never going to happen. So, like you said, Abby, I think they kind of they kind of deserve what was coming. End of day, Kaisenhofer, she's got a gold medal. You can't take that away from her. And on the bright side, everybody else only has to wait three years now to get a second stab at the uh, at three gold. Years. Yeah, because obviously we're a year behind, aren't we? And and look, like yes, there's all this controversy. But I, I love, I absolutely love that in four months, six months, people are going to look at the results sheet and all they're going to see is that Kiesenhofer won the race. They're not going to, people are going to forget. Like, well, they might not forget because this is a pretty massive, uh, massive fuck up. Sorry. Beep. On somebody's <laughs> part. But, <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, like Shadi said, at the end of the day, she won this race and she won this race with like, her pure strength. She won it with smart. She won it with guts. And I, I wish that that was the only thing we were talking about out of this. Unfortunately, the fact that the, the fact that the whole race happened the way it did does mean that there is a side story that is like quite a relevant, like insignificant story to go along with the Olympics. And, and Hey, like, I feel like the best way to look at it is just like, <laughs> you idiots like what i don't know i just like that that's the only way that i can look at it and and that was I my don't... reaction watching it at two o'clock in the morning yeah exactly turn it, turn well, it on also... you idiots <laughs> like at that yeah. point in time i had no idea why why the gap had existed like that because we you know we hadn't heard the post race because we didn't know the stuff about the time gaps whatever else i was just like how did it how did we get here how did we get here at 15k to go with a gap that size you you just rode yourselves out of the bike race. Congratulations, Netherlands. 
And I would like to point out everyone on Twitter who's like, oh, but they go through the feed zone. Wouldn't the Swannies? Okay. Do you know how fast they're going through the feed zone? And also like the sound of like hubs as you're not pedaling. I don't know if you've been in a Peloton of 40 people and the sound of hubs not being pedaled is quite loud. And like people are yelling because you're trying to get move over. Like there's a lot of shouting going on in a feed zone. The Swaniers are not sitting there with a timer like, the gap is 10 minutes. That's not a thing. The Swannies are like, it was brutally hot and humid, and the Swannies were just trying to get water and, and electrolytes and food to their riders. They were not thinking about the time gap. That is not what happens in a feed zone. That right. is like, at at this stage in a bike race, like at this level of a bike race, it's it's on the motos to to, you know, have the boards be correct whether or not they were, I feel like we're never going to know, <laughs> but like, there were some hilariously, what... sorry. No, I'm just saying like, that's not the, that's not the Swanee's job. So everyone who's saying like, well, they all rode through the feed zone. Would they not have known the gaps? It's like, no, that's not what the Swanee's are for. There were some hilariously ignorant hot takes on the internet, uh, shortly yeah. after this one from people who have clearly never been inside a bike race. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we should move on from this. Congratulations. Anakis and offer amazing 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 ride i think we're going to be talking about her for i think like maybe this right now this isn't the number one story it is the number one story but there is also a side story that's like you know 0.8 um 0.9 and a half i don't know there's two stories at the olympics but i feel like the way that kiesenhofer rode the just the sheer determination that she showed in the road race. I do not see her riding a Franken bike in 2022. I do not see her not being a, like on another top step of a podium. Like she's going, she's absolutely ridden herself into a contract if that's what she wants to do. Yeah, I was finding it interesting to get kind of like the, the non deep cyclist perspective, right? Cause watching the Olympics on NBC, here in the states and the way they framed it was just wow what an upset right that was that was the, that was the entire framing of the of the the road race here and it was you know i don't know how uh olympic coverage is in other countries but olympic olympic coverage here is very much like how many backstories can we tell how many sob stories can we tell how many like you know that that that's just what nbc does and for, from the sort of like broader perspective that finish was absolutely ideal for putting the road race in front of as many people as possible. They showed it more times than they would have if Enemy Van Vluten won. No question in my mind, they were talking about that road race more than if Enemy Van Vluten had won bike race. So, you know, a good thing from multiple perspectives, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, before I go, I would just like to say, um, in terms of the men's race, Shouldn't the whole field be be time cut? This is a twelve minute rolling enclosure, wasn't it? Fourteen minute rolling enclosure. They're all so actually Carapaz, uh, Tade, and and wow, they're all time cut. Like Nick, Nick I, I want won. to lodge a protest. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, well, Wabby, what you're referencing there is that they they were twenty minutes behind at one point in technically a twelve minute rolling enclosure, and riders who were twelve minutes off the back near the end they did get they get stopped and then they got to allow they were allowed to finish but they got DNFs which is unfortunate. Yeah. All right, Abby, thank you for joining us for that part of the thank show. Thank you for letting me leave early. Go have dinner with your family. I will do that. All right, let's pivot 
let's pivot over to the men's race really quickly. Less to talk about here, uh, other than just just a really cleverly timed move from Richard Carapaz uh, and a very, very, very hard course. A couple other sort of honorable mentions, I think, for 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 their rides. Obviously, second place Waffenart um, basically pulled that group together about 27 times over the last 30K or so and still managed to sprint for second. I was also massively impressed with Brandon McNulty. Uh, he was the, basically the only rider who could really go with Pogacar when he went. Woods came across a little bit like a couple seconds later. But McNulty was right there the entire time. And he said after the race that basically, you know, he was he was Pogacar's teammate throughout the entire Tour de France, right? He knew uh, that Pogacar was going to go. Hell, they might have even told him, right? They are they are trade teammates and and the sort of trade team uh, alliances are always uh, a, a not really spoken of, but important part of an Olympic road race. Maybe he knew exactly where Pogacar was planning to go. Uh, but anyway, he was still he was still able to hang on when lots of very 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 good climbers were not, uh, including Richard Carapaz, by the way. So uh, an amazing ride for McNulty. Uh, you know, kind of unfortunate for him that he just got popped right at the finale there uh, and was swallowed up and finished. I think in sixth uh, sixth, I believe. But pretty pretty great Olympic road race on the men's side. Yeah, Richard Carapaz. I think the the timing of his attack. He he just read the race perfectly, uh, and it was. It's the kind of thing we've seen before at some big, hard, and 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 really di- uh, yeah, one day races that are just really long, uh, where at the end of the day there's just not a lot of domestiques left, and that means you have ten guys from different teams up at the front, and they're all usually big names, and in those kinds of situations, you know, and, and Alberto Bedial might be able to sneak away to win a Tour of Flanders because some of his rival teams aren't going to have the firepower to chase him down without kind of doing what Wav Art did, which is using his own legs rather than using a teammate's legs to do it. And that's exactly what the situation was at the end of this race, where Carpas realized there are really no domestiques left. If I attack, it's going to be up to my own rivals to chase me rather than their teammates. And they might not try to do that because of Wav Art being in the group. And that's that's exactly what happened. Everybody looked at Wav Art to chase. He actually did chase several times. He went to the front, did what he could over and over and over again. Uh, but by himself, he wasn't quite able to and without kind of fully committing for the entirety of the chase, because he knew that if he did that, he was going to get destroyed at the final sprint, they were unable to to bring back that move. And to me, that's just Carpas reading the race perfectly. And and I think he, you got to time it right too, because if you go too early, you know, you you, you might miss out and be done. Uh, but if you wait, there are probably other riders in that group who who probably thinking the same thing, thinking I got to go with 10k to go. And maybe I'll be able to get, get away, but Carpas timed it right. He was the one who got away and, and well, with McNulty. And it was both of them, you know, able to kind of outfox the rest of the peloton. Obviously, you have to be really strong to do that. But I think the, the tactics were, were perfect. I felt bad for McNulty because a lot of that last, a lot of the time when they, when those two were off the front was just sort of slightly downhill. Um, and he's so much taller than Richard Carapaz. Like every time they'd swap, I mean, Carapaz was getting the most massive and perfect draft that entire time. And McNulty was sitting literally like able to look over top of Carapaz the entire time, getting nowhere near the same amount of draft. And honestly, that that could have been that extra amount of power. The fact that he had to do a little bit more power behind, even when he was drafting, that could have been the difference between him staying on that podium and getting dropped on that little kicker once they got back to the speedway. Uh, that could have been it. Just the fact that he's 
eight inches taller than the guy that he was riding with. Uh, I, I, I just felt for him, and you could just... I'm not a super tall rider, but I've certainly raced with a fair number of people who were much shorter than me, and man, it sucks. <laughs> it's really terrible when you're stuck behind there and you're trying to draft and you're literally looking over top of the person in front of you. Uh, so I just felt bad for him. And it was an amazing ride, though. I think... You know, it'd be interesting to see what he does in the in the TT this week. Um, I mean, McNulty is clearly on incredible form, and it's got to be one of the most exciting exciting American talents we've seen in some time. Uh, maybe him and Quinn Simmons, who won in Wallany this week, actually. Uh, yeah, it's it's him, Quinn, Sepp. It's a uh, it's looking up a little bit for American cyclists at the moment. Well, maybe the last thought on that. I've already had this thought several times watching one day races over the past two years or so, but I feel like we're really, it's a really exciting time for one day racing, particularly hilly one day racing, because the riders that we see, the riders that we saw at the Olympic men's road race are the stars of the sport. And that hasn't always been, there's, there's been a long period where there's been this kind of division between the guys who do the one day races the guys who do the Grand Tours. And, you know, for a long time, largely thanks to Chris Froome, it was the Grand Tours for Chris Froome and then the, everything, everybody did it. Uh, everybody else did the, the, you know, the one-day races maybe. But now it's, it's Tadej Pogacar putting in the, the, the big attack, really, of this race, the one that kind of split the group for a second there. And the guy that won the race is the guy that finished third on the Tour de France podium. And Wad van Aert, who won three stages of the Tour de France, finished second overall. And, and it's really cool, I think, to have... Basically, if the race is hilly enough... You can have one-day races that have most of the stars of the sport right now, and we didn't have that for a really long time, and I think that's pretty cool to see. Well, I, I think, was it last episode where I, I, my theory here is that this young generation is kind of rebelling against basically 20 years of sort of hyper-careful and very Grand Tour and particularly Tour de France-focused riders. I, I mean, because you can go all the way back to Armstrong and he really changed the, he changed the makeup of, um, of essentially like the, the calendar of a tour de France contender, right? Did a lot fewer races, did a lot fewer one days. Uh, not always, you know, he, he'd occasionally jump into him, but Chris Froome was sort of an, an extension of that. Took it even further. Did almost nothing that was not purely focused on winning the tour de France every year. And you know, if you grew up in that, I think you were probably frustrated by that. And Pogacar and Walt van Aert, they did grow up in that, right? They were they were teenagers, they were they were young riders when this was happening. And I I hundred percent think that they look at that and say, I don't want to do that. I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna just do the Tour de France every year. I think probably like Pidcock is the same way, right? Pidcock just this morning won the Olympic mountain bike race after winning road races this spring. I think that this this latest generation of riders has no interest in in just being one-dimensional in that way uh if, i mean pitcock that's that's like four-dimensional five-dimensional like you know when, when you're talking about winning road races and mountain bike races not just different types of road races but different disciplines entirely it's i love it i absolutely love it and i and i genuinely i think that there's there's something to a rebellion against 20 years of boring grand tour contenders so what you're saying is this new generation's like the Sex Pistols, Buzzcocks, drones of the cycling world, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. 100%, Shadi. It's good to see. It's exciting to see because, yeah, let's be honest, the tour 
for quite a long time was not predictable, just not as exciting as it could have been, it used to be. A lot of races weren't. So, it's yeah, it's absolutely superb to see Grand Tour riders rocking up to one-day races, one-day riders turning up to Grand Tour and hitting it out. It's it's absolutely lovely to see. It's exciting to see. And hopefully it's going to long, long continue into the future. Speaking of which, before we get into the mountain bike racing, in 2018... Rafa published the Roadmap following a two-year research project that investigated how cycling could be made more exciting and more valuable. The recommendations in the Roadmap guide all of Rafa's investments and have led to the launch of the Rafa Foundation, focused on the grassroots of the sport. Founded in 2019 with the mission of building a better future for cycling and cyclists, the Rafa Foundation funds organizations around the world committed to inspiring, empowering, and supporting the next generation of riders and racers. The Rafa Foundation invests 1.5 million U.S. dollars a year into grassroots organizations. Throughout the past two years, this foundation has granted funding to the Major Taylor Project in Seattle, NICA, which is the High School Mountain Bike League, Cycle Kids, and Star Trek in New York, Detroit Fitness Foundation, the Mud Fund, the Amy D Foundation, Boulder Junior Cycling, and many more. Now, if you want to hear more about the roadmap and specifically from some of the folks that were involved in it uh, and from Simon, the founder of Rafa himself. We actually did a series of episodes on the roadmap back last year. You can search for those in your podcast app. They're in the same channel as this podcast. Just search for the Rafa roadmap episodes, a couple of them in there, and they're pretty interesting discussions uh, about the, well, where the sport can go. Thanks to Rafa for sponsoring Today's episode. Uh, cross country, men's cross country mountain bike happened last night. Um, that's the last event before we recorded here. Just a quick update. Uh, Matthew Vanderpool thought there was a, a bridge where there wasn't a bridge or a, a roll down where there wasn't a roll down. Um, basically, there's a big drop on the cross country course. And in practice, there had been a ramp. So you know, in that case, what you kind of do in a, in a, in a drop like this is you basically pre hop it. So you kind of skip the lip, so to speak, and you land on the downhill, uh, on the, on the ramp part of the downhill. And that actually accelerates you out of the, out of the drop. And that's what we did, what he did. So you pick the front wheel up, then you pick the back wheel up and then you kind of drop the front wheel so that you're, you're at the same, uh, you're perp- or parallel to the, the landing and there was no landing. <laughs> And well, uh, there, there was a landing. It just wasn't where he thought it was. Yes. The landing was, was, about, was about five feet further, further away than, than he was expecting and about six feet lower. And so he just nosedived straight into uh, basically the top of the landing and had a pretty nasty crash. Uh, ended up pulling out. He did start up again, but ended up pulling out of the race. Uh, I haven't seen whether he has had any fractures. He was at the hospital getting checked out. Dane, did we have any update on that? Uh, no fractures detected. Yeah. There we go. So no fractures detected. So that is good news, but definitely not the Olympics that Vanderpool was hoping for. It's really unfortunate. Uh, but his, his sort of road crossover mountain bike rival, Tom Pitcock came away with the gold medal in a pretty, pretty impressive display. Uh, worth remembering that Pitcock almost wasn't at the Olympics, almost didn't qualify due to the kind of weird qualification rules around the cross-country race and 
basically his his you know great britain not having good enough mountain bikers the rest of the year to to earn a slot and so it was a, sort of a weird confluence of events that what was that was required for him to actually even be here those events ended up happening it was somebody somebody else had to drop out somebody else had to win it was a whole thing but he was here and glad he was because it was a super impressive victory and a gold medal for great britain in the mountain bike race woohoo woo and i think that's it for our olympic wrap here there's more coming obviously uh we've got the women's cross country coming up we've got the time trials coming up and then we've got track racing coming up uh we are going to do a little explainer ahead of the track racing on what on earth all of these events are because i know that a lot of our listeners out there probably don't watch a lot of track racing aren't super familiar with what all these events are and they keep changing from olympics to olympics so we'll go through exactly what you can uh how to watch what you're watching what exactly you're looking at uh, in, a, in an upcoming episode here Hey, don't forget, we, we should delve into the BMXing as well. It is an Olympic sport, after all, on two wheels. I don't know anything about BMXing. <laughs> it's, e- it's exciting. That's all you need to know. It's really cool to watch. Yeah. It's, like the, it's by far the coolest one to watch, but I just know... I know that there's a Dutch guy running a derailleur. He's got a two-speed, which I guess is legal in BMX, but no one usually does it. But something about the the like opening straight on the Tokyo course means that he he's got a bike with with two gears on it. It's unusual. That's all I know about the BMX. Speaking of random tech tidbits like that. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Our nerd, nerd nugget alert. for today. James, you noticed something about the but Anna Kiesenhofer's bicycle. Couple things and not just about her bicycle. So, um because she is not really on a team and doesn't really have seemingly official sponsorships as far as like, you know, from a brand level, um, from what I can tell, she is sponsored or supported in some way by a bike shop in Switzerland. Um, and the bike that she was riding, she was on a Scott, um, I believe it was an addict and she had a curious mix of Shimano and SRAM on there. Uh, I think it was, a. Uh, Shimano Dura ASDI 2 levers and derailers, um, possibly cassette, hard to say. Um, but she was also running a SRAM Red crankset uh, and SRAM Red rotors. Uh, so just kind of an interesting mashup of stuff, uh, all of which w- should work totally fine. Um, Do we know if she bought that bike? It's unclear. Uh, like I said, it's. I mean, I know. I know when she. She posted something on her Instagram account when shortly after she got the bike, thanking the shop. So it's unclear if she bought the shop or if she was sponsored by the shop in some way. Um, again, the shop is located in Switzerland. She is Austrian. That doesn't really mean anything because geographically, Austria and Switzerland are so close to each other. Um, but don't know. Either way, that's the sort of thing that you don't typically see in like a like a you know a top level professional road race. Usually, like you know the Tour, the Giro, stuff like that. Um, everything is always very at least officially very kind of cut and dried as far as who supplies what. I just noticed um, that I noticed that Scott was using photos of her in promo on Instagram. And I was like, if, I she, mean, bought, if she bought that bike, that would be pr- like, they should refund her <laughs> if, she, if she did buy that bike. She, yeah, that, maybe because they're, they're clearly getting some clearly getting some mileage out of this thing. Yeah, I would think so. I, I imagine she'll get free bikes next time if she did buy the, the last one. I, I would imagine she will. Yes, she will. 
very likely not have to. Hopefully, there's some sort of gold-ish bike in her future supplied by somebody because I dare say she deserves it. Um, you know, I don't know if it'll be a Greg Van Avermaet or Sammy Sanchez level of gold where they just you know, drape themselves in gold basically from head to toe for four or five years as the case may be. But she deserves to have some some gold on her bike. I think that's safe to say. Um, and then a little bit more mashup news. Um, so Tom Pidcock, who we, just, who we were just talking about for the, the men's mountain bike Olympic race winner, Olympic cross-country winner, uh, you know, for, throughout the, Ineos doesn't officially have a, a, a sponsor on the mountain bike side. I mean, he sort of is the Ineos team. Um, and he's been running a – he's been running BMC frames. Um, he had a, an SR Suntour suspension fork, which is, you know, a little bit unusual at that level of sport. Kind of, kind of fun to see one of the smaller players be able to, to nab that – nab that prize um but be, as a result of not really having official suppliers and we see this to some extent with Ineos on the road uh, i think he was free to kind of just run whatever he wanted or whatever the team was willing to buy for him uh, because a couple of things that stood out to me were he was running what appeared to be synchro silverton sl wheels which are uh they're almost sort of like the mountain bike equivalent of lightweights um which i guess given that it's Ineos, is not entirely surprising you know yeah car carbon hubs um, carbon spokes, carbon rim, all molded together, all one piece, uh, very similar to a lightweight. So super, super light, wicked stiff, um, supposedly very strong. I've ridden those wheels. They are tangibly lighter and faster feeling. Um, and then he also was running a synchros one piece, uh, carbon fiber handlebar and stem, kind of like what you would see on a, on a road bike with, with it's all, when it's all molded together. But, you know, you wouldn't normally see synchros parts, which are, you know, it's a division of Scott, uh, on a BMC at that level of racing. But this is the Olympics. And, you know, again, seeing as how he doesn't really have a trade team sponsor for mountain bike stuff, I guess they were kind of free to run, run whatever they want. So there you go. Yeah, Pinarello not super concerned about him not running a – they, nope. they make mountain bikes? They do. I know they have in they, the past. They, yeah, but they do not anymore. All right. I like that. I like the – I mean, you know – what would you run if you could just run anything? I guess that's exactly. stuff, right? Exactly. I mean, that bike's probably crazy light. That synchro stuff is really, really, really light, and those wheels are super cool. It's completely the opposite to what Sean Kelly said when asked the question, what's your favorite bike? He said, the one that I'm paid to ride, where Pigcock can actually say, this is my favorite bike, because <laughs> I was able to build it up myself. <laughs> and, and honestly, works out a lot better for uh, the equipment that he was riding for the for the, the companies behind the equipment that he was riding because they can actually say he chose this the gold medal winner chose this we didn't just pay him to ride it that's that's a that's a pretty big boon for for bmc and synchros wheels and, and all the rest pretty big endorsement all right that's it from us today like i said we'll be back with more olympics might do a special episode later this week because there is there's 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 stuff coming there's there's lots of things happening this week. I think if we wait till Monday, it'll be a little bit too long. So maybe we'll throw another special Olympic episode in end of this week. James will be keeping an eye out, along with Ronan, uh, for anything unique being ridden in these races. And we'll be back to break it all down. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>